0: Good morning, church. Um, I'll be reading this morning's sermon text, so if you would, turn the book of Hosea, chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, under the seats, it can be found on page 759, I believe. We'll be starting in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord, and say to him, Take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say, No more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall, not take, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like the Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of the Lord. Um, would you join me in spirit as I pray? Oh, Father, oh, we are so needy and uh, desperate for truth, for life. Um, thank you that you've given us your word. Um, Lord, we thank you that for those of us here that are in Christ, you say you've removed the veil that we can um, see Christ um, in the Old Testament. We praise you uh, for that. We pray that uh, you would accomplish your purpose in your word this morning, um, that, you would, that you would show us more and more of your character, um, the glory of Christ, and all, the pra- all to the praise of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. These are the last words that Kyle just read for us. The last words of the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea has been the story of stumbling transgressors. He says... uh, uh, Transgressors stumble in the ways of the Lord. And the book of Hosea has been about a group of stumbling transgressors, the nation of Israel, overflowing in prosperity, blessed beyond measure by the Lord their God. They had stumbled and fallen. They had loved other gods. They had worshipped gods that were no gods at all. They said they didn't need God. They didn't need a king. They needed nothing. They thought that they made themselves prosperous. They trusted in the countries that surrounded them for safety and protection, and they'd abandoned the one who could actually protect them. God's covenant bride had disgraced his name far and wide. They had repeatedly been unfaithful, though he had been unceasingly kind. What is to happen to a group of people who reject the kindness of God? Throughout the book of Hosea, in our quick journey through it, we have heard God's charges against his people and his promises of a wrath to come. He promised that he would bring his people into the wilderness, that they would suffer That he would remove his hand of blessing from them. Yet even in the midst of promises of judgment, the Lord dropped breadcrumbs of hope. And so I ask us today, is there any hope left for the people of Israel? Is there hope left for a wayward bride? Israel was living functionally godless lives. It's not unlike our day Many, many even within the church, live a prosperous and functionally godless life. We act as if our blessings come from ourselves, we trust in everything but the Lord. We say we need nothing and no one. We prize our individuality, our ability to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, our ability to make things happen and accomplish things in our lives. What happens when the flood of judgment comes? Can we stand in the day of God's wrath? Hosea 14 is a beautiful conclusion to a difficult And at times brutal book. Hosea does not end with judgment. But hope. Hope that after the wickedness of humanity is righteously judged. After walking through the wilderness of self-inflicted pain. There stands our husband with arms wide open. Not telling us it's too late. As long as you walk this earth. It is not too late. But imploring his people to return to him, to find life in him, to bear fruit through him. This morning we are going to consider the Lord, in Hosea 14, the Lord's invitation, the response he desires and will have, and the promise that he makes. So it's an invitation, a response, and a promise. May the Lord remind us this morning where salvation lies. May the Lord expose our hearts that we might find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. The invitation of the Lord, twice in the first two verses. You have your Bibles open? Hosea 14. Twice in the first two verses, Israel is implored to return to the Lord. You see that in there? Verse 1. Verse 2, two things worth noting in that invitation. First, we need to see that this invitation comes not in the place of judgment for their sin, but on the heels of that judgment. So, all that the Lord said would happen to them was going to happen to them. There is no clue in the book of Hosea that says, if you stop doing what you're doing, I will relent. This judgment was going to come. And this would be what he called for on the heels of his judgment. When they were in the wilderness, this was the response that he was looking for from them. He would bring them into the wilderness so that they might hear the invitation. He had told them, he would allure them. In the wilderness, not in the place of prosperity, but in the place of pain. Even today, the Lord cries out. He calls out to his people, often through pain, to return to him. This is something we've stressed a few different times throughout these four weeks. How often in our lives has the Lord used pain to stir us to turn to him? How often has prosperity made us deaf? And blind, thinking we got it all together. I got my bank account. I can pay my bills. I'm good. I made myself. I don't need anything. The Lord says here in 14 that they had stumbled because of their iniquity. When we hear the word iniquity, as we have 12 different times at least in the book of Hosea... We're meant to understand that these were, it's not just people who did a couple oopsies, right? This is not, iniquity is not, they made some mistakes along the way. The the word iniquity implies that these are a twisted people. That they've got, they are twisted and not just outward actions, but people who had internal problems. They stumbled outwardly because they were twisted inwardly. They had an internal problem. This is the problem of humanity since the fall of Adam. We do what we do because we are who we are, right? People who live in sin do so because they have wicked hearts. When believers find outward sin in ourselves, it is contrary to what is inside of them. And so they say, I don't want this. I don't want to live this way. But these people, the nation of Israel, they were a twisted people. Because the kindness of God did not lead these people to repent, now they will face the severity of God with the hope that they will repent. This word return implies that they stop going in one direction And go in the way that they once went, in the way that the Lord calls them to go. This is the essence of repentance. Repentance is not simply feeling bad for something you did. That's not repentance. Repentance is a change of heart, a change of direction. We read earlier from the book of Joel, the call to rend, what did, what did Joel, what was Joel calling the people to do? Rend what? Your hearts and not your garments. The Lord is looking for inward change, heart posture change. And you might say to that, I've done this bit three times so far in the book of Hosea. What's your first reaction to when God says, change your heart? What's your reaction? I can't do that. And you'd be right. But there's good news still. Because the second item I want you to see in this invitation to return to the Lord is that the fact that he offers this invitation means he is willing to have them return. Right? That's wonderful news. As I thought about this passage this week and prayed about the Lord's invitation to Israel to return to him. He is willing to have them return. Uh, You know, I I wondered how many in this room, if you're here as a visitor this morning, if you're saying, I don't even know what I believe about Jesus, I I do wonder if you've heard the gospel message. I've encountered some people who hear the gospel message, the hope of forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ, and their response to that is, you have no idea the life I've lived. You don't know the wickedness that I have carried out. You don't don't know how evil I have been. And I would just say this to you. Read the book of Hosea. And at the end of the book of Hosea, after the Lord lists some of the most heinous things that you could imagine that these people were doing, and he says, return to me. That's amazing. There may be some in here believers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are saying, "I yes, I know the Lord forgives me, but but I still carry it. Around, I carry around like I, I believe that Jesus forgives me, but how could He really? How could He really forgive me for that? Maybe carrying around the guilt and shame." Certain parts of your lives in the past were too too sinful, too shameful, too wicked, beyond cure. These people were wicked. They invented ways to dishonor God. And here we find him saying, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. This is the heart of God. Gracious, forgiving merciful. For those who sit in these seats today, please know that there is no such thing as too far gone while you walk this earth. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ stands as a testimony that our God is a forgiving God, a God who invites His people to return to him, to turn to him in faith. There's a lot more I'd like to say, but we've got a lot more to cover. So what we see this invitation for the people of Israel to return to their Lord, uh, to again be united to their faithful husband. What would returning look like for them? We find our answers in verses 2 and 3. And I always love when this happens. Jim Widener had no idea what I was going to say this morning. But he referenced a verse that I'm about to talk about. What does the return look like uh, for the people of Israel? And and it starts verse 2 with this phrase, take with you words. Did you think that was odd when we read that? Take with you words. What does that mean? It's an odd sounding phrase, but it basically means what it says. Their return to him will involve words. The writer of Hebrews says, as Jim read earlier, through him, well paraphrase, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. He calls his people to return with words. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A turn to the Lord, acts of praise to the Lord, they all involve words. The Lord is asking for confession. Confession is difficult. Do you know people who have a very difficult time admitting that they did something wrong? I see you all turn into the person next to you. <laughs> Maybe certain folks who know they're wrong and they just try to act like it never happened, they move on, hoping nobody will notice. This is not what the Lord desires. What does He desire? He desires acknowledgement of sin. Lord, we have rebelled against you. Why? Why does He care if we actually say it? Well, it reflects ownership of sin, understanding that what we did is sin, desire for cleansing from that sin. Israel's sacrifices were of no value to the Lord or to them before the Lord because they were not united with real brokenness over and acknowledgement of sin. Here in verse 2, we see that confession and sacrifice are united. See, read verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. The point being, the sacrifices that we make are tied to the confession and acknowledgement of our sin. The Lord accepts the the fruit of our labors as we come to him and ask and confess I'm totally lost. Verse 2, we do note that confession and sacrifice are united, pleasing to the Lord. What is the beauty of the gospel message? That in this one sacrifice, right, we're not going to be offering up any bulls this afternoon. You know why? Because in this one sacrifice the offering of Jesus Christ, iniquity is taken away for all who believe, all who confess and believe. Iniquity is taken away and the people of God are made acceptable in his sight. What were the Israelites supposed to confess? So what they need to, he says, take with you words. What did they have to confess? Where do we even begin, right? They had lots of stuff to confess. Verse, confess. Verse 3 outlines some of the basics. Look at a couple of statements we can zero in on. Assyria shall not save us. We, shall not, we will not ride on horses. One of the Lord's contentions with his people was that they ran to other nations, Assyria being represented for protection rather than trusting in him. A great illustration of this, around the same time, prophet Isaiah, he goes, the Lord sends him to King Ahab, and he says, listen, or Ahaz, I should say, Ahaz, and he says, here's my command, don't seek help from Egypt, don't seek help from other nations, just stay still and trust me. You know what Ahaz does? He does, he seeks help from other nations, yes, he The command was simple. Just stay still. Do nothing. Like literally do nothing and see what God does. And he couldn't do it. This is the wickedness of the hearts of these people. They're trusting in other nations. They are not trusting in the Lord. They're not. We will not ride on horses. They trusted in their own strength, their own power, their own military might. Instead of looking to the Lord as a helper, The heart of the accusation against them is that these people thought other nations and their own strength could be a better solution to their issues than the Lord himself. How often are we guilty of this? How often do we live by our own intuitions, trust in our own wisdom, come up with our own plans separate from the wisdom of the Lord? Don't even seek the wisdom of the Lord. Do we feel embarrassed at times to say, what does the Lord have to say about this? We feel like I should be able to figure this out on my own. I should be able to handle this on my own. When he keeps telling you, come to me, seek my means, seek my wisdom, seek abundant counselors who will give you my wisdom. We have lists of things that we trust in before the Lord. Competitors for his throne. We trust in our houses, our bank accounts, our 401ks. None of those things are evil. But we say, if I have this, everything will be okay. Everything will be fine. Israel was saying, if we have horses and we have crops and we have Assyria, everything's going to be fine. And they were wrong. Because they didn't have the Lord. The call on them and the call on us in their their repentance is to say, if I have the Lord, I have everything. Everything I need. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen. Beloved of God, there has never been a day in your lives where God has failed to provide for you. Do you know that? Has He yet? Has He let you down yet one day? He can and must be trusted for everything we need. Salvation. What do we bring to the table? Sin. We bring the bad stuff, he brings the good. It's all of him. Growth in godliness, where does that come from? Us? Him. Daily provisions, where does that come from? Us? You might, say, you might say, ah, yeah, I provide for myself. I don't need his help. Wrong. Even the nation of Israel, he repeatedly says throughout the book of Hosea, whether you acknowledge it or not, your crops came from me. Your shelter came from me. Your provision came from me, whether you acknowledge it or not. Everything we have comes from his hand. He has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. We need look nowhere else. And another part, so we got that. We got no trusting in Assyria, no trusting in horses. Another part of Israel's repentant return would be the acknowledgement that they had been idolaters. This would be their confession, right? He say, they say here, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. Idolatry is such a silly thing, isn't it? You, you, the person actually like cuts down a tree or, or, you know, shapes a piece of metal. They make a, you know, whatever God they want to worship, they set it in front of them. They, They don't realize this is not new material. This is what God says in the scripture. Like, they never sit and think to themselves, hey, I made this and now I'm bowing down to it. Idolatry is really silly, isn't it? Crafting something for yourself and then proclaiming it to be your God. Israel had adopted the practices of the nations around them and the Lord was going to use calamity to remind them how foolish it was. Where were their gods going to be when the Lord came in wrath? Which one of their false gods was going to help them? Their false gods would be silent. What would Israel be reminded of when their gods failed them? That the Lord is the one true God. Their foreign allegiances and their false gods will fail them, but the Lord will not. Our idolatry may not look like the idolatry of the Israelites. We would never be so foolish as to chop up a piece of wood and worship it on our mantle, right? We wouldn't do that. But there is a reason why John ends his first epistle with the sentence, what? Little children keep yourselves from idols. Our hearts can make idols of anything. What in our lives are we willing to say or functionally say, you are more important, more valuable, more powerful in my life than the Lord himself? To what do we bow down and say, you have my trust. In you I find my security and my hope. If the answer is anything other than the Lord, that is an idol. The Lord would be so kind to bring them to a place where they remembered once more that He is their provider. He is their sustainer. That He is the one true God. Everything you have comes from Him. Repentance and returning means confession and acknowledgement of what is true. Apart from the Lord, we have nothing. We are not supposed to be self-saviors, self-sustainers, self-fixers. What the Lord wants from Israel, what the Lord wants from us is faith that what we have in Him is better and more powerful than anything we can do. And anything this world has to offer. And their response ends with this sentence. Do you think this was out of place? In you the orphan finds mercy. The end of verse something, three. In you the orphan finds mercy. It may be that after the judgment of the Lord that the people of Israel feel as if they are orphans. Left for dead. And at that time, what a joy to remember that in the Lord the orphan finds mercy. So they felt like that they were orphaned children because of their waywardness, and then they can be reminded in their repentance that the Lord loves orphans, that the Lord welcomes orphans. I was reminded this week of the parable of the prodigal son, right? He is he is in the he's wandering. He's out eating the pig slop. And he says, right, I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going, to, I'm going to hope that he'll treat me like one of his servants, at least. At least I can eat, right? He figures that at least his father would welcome him back to that extent. But what does he find? He finds the loving and merciful embrace of his father, restoration, healing, forgiveness, welcome. Here too, Israel remembers that the Lord is merciful to the orphan, even to the one who had made himself an orphan. Our repentance involves understanding the character of the one to whom we repent, right? We bring our confession. We we confess our sins to him. How many times in the scriptures do we see the Lord being gracious, merciful, and forgiving toward those who repent? All the time, right? When Peter asked Jesus how many times he should forgive his brother who sins against him, right? And Peter comes up with a big number in his head, right? How many times should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? What number does Peter come up with? Seven. And some might read that and like, come on, Peter, seven? He was thinking of a big number. He was going above and beyond what the law may have required. So he was thinking, I'm going to be extra gracious. What does Jesus say to him? Not seven, Peter. Seventy times seven. Seventy times seven. Why? Because you are to be children of your heavenly Father who is rich in mercy and forgiveness. Whose forgiveness of us far outweighs any forgiveness that we might have to offer to one another. The response of Israel was to be confession of sin, despairing of seeking strength from other places, remembering that on, the only God is the one in whom they must trust, and remembering that this God is merciful and welcoming to the repentant sinner. When we think about repentance, it's, easily, it's easy to go immediately to, Stop doing this and start doing that. And to be clear, we see some examples of that in Scripture. Ephesians 4, we see Colossians 3. Those are put off, put on, put off, put on, as it pertains to the lives of spirit-filled believers in Christ. But the heart of real repentance is a change of belief. Self-sufficiency does not save. Trusting in self does not save. Serving false gods does not save. Rebellion against God leads to death. But seeking the mercy and grace of God, trusting in His means of provision and salvation, this brings life. Which leads us to our last point this morning. God's promises. When the people of Israel repent... When they lay themselves upon the mercy of God, when they cry out to Him, what exactly will they find waiting for them? Even mercy has its limits, right? Even the patience of the Lord will run out. What does Israel hear from their Lord in Hosea 14? What do we hear from this unchanging God when we seek His mercy? We hear the words we so desperately need to hear. Words of forgiveness, healing, and blessing. Verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. How beautiful are these words? I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. This God is the same God that we gather to worship today, right? Israel had no grounds to hope for mercy. And yet when they seek it, his answer will be, it's yours. You have my mercy. The Lord would heal their apostasy. Apostasy is an awful word. What does apostasy mean? Anybody know? What's what's apostasy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, deviation from the truth. Departing from God, literally breaking off the relationship with God. And he says, I'm going to heal that. I will heal your apostasy. I will forgive you for abandoning me. I will forgive you for wandering. I will forgive you for your false God worship. Friends, the offer still stands. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might de- display His perfect patience as an example to those Who were to believe in him for eternal life? To the King of the Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The most wicked of sinners. The Apostle Paul thought himself to be the most wicked sinner possible. The life he lived before he came to Christ. He would say, no one could be as far gone as I was. And the Lord showed me mercy. The most wicked of sinners the Lord is willing to forgive. All who look to Jesus with eyes of faith will be saved. None is too far gone. There's nobody that sits here. Nobody that we talk to. Nobody that we work with. Nobody in our families. Nobody that we have chalked up as beyond hope. He could save us. Who is beyond his reach? Not just a healing though. He will heal their apostasy. But then he says. I will love them freely. Not just healing. But love. He will freely love those who are his. His anger has turned from them. What a wonderful pointer to the work of Jesus who is the propitiation for our sins, right? The wrath of God that we deserved. He took that the Lord may count us as the righteousness of Christ. The wrath of God was poured on Jesus so that all who believe in Him will not be treated as their sins deserved but as righteous in Jesus. Not only is God... Not angry at those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. All right? So you may have, to have a tough time even getting to that point in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you feel like God's just got this perpetual scowl. Like, eh. yeah, I saved that person, but really disappointed by them most of the time. Not only is God not angry at those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, His posture toward us is much more positive than that. He loves those who are His. He welcomes those who are His. Do you know that today? Those who are in Christ by faith are loved by God. Repentance unto salvation is a return to loving relationship with your Maker, your Heavenly Father, your Husband. He calls us His people. He calls us those who have received mercy. And the promise is not simply healing and love, which would be more than enough, more than we or they deserve, but also a fruitfulness that comes from him alone. We see it in five through seven. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Not just healing, not just love, which would be more than enough, but a fruitfulness I think our hearts and minds were meant to be directed toward the Garden of Eden, right? The dew that watered the ground, the fruitfulness that it produced. The Lord promises a future fruitfulness for His people that will echo the Garden of Eden. After judgment and pain, fruitlessness and drought, The Lord says that his people will flourish. They will be watered by him. And they will blossom like the lily. They will have roots that drive down deep and spread out wide. With a beauty and a pleasant aroma. Flourishing, blossoming, fame in the world all around them. And where does all this take place? Beneath his shadow. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And here in Hosea, the Lord says once again, all of this fruitfulness will come in my shadow. What a beautiful picture of the way that the Lord works in and through His people. The promise was for Israel, but fulfilled in the church. As we rest in Christ, as we seek salvation in no other, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord bears fruit and drives roots down deep. He makes His people a beautiful spectacle, an aroma. To some, we are the aroma of death. But to others, the aroma of life. But to all, we the church, by God's grace, are called to be the aroma of Christ in this world. And all of it comes from him. He says in verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Everything we have comes from him. Church, there's a lot more I could say. I want us to sing. There's a lot more I could say about everything that we have studied here in Hosea. But as we wrap up this quick series, what must we remember? That a people who had no right to expect anything from the Lord have received a promise of an unbelievable mercy. A people who have been so unfaithful in so many and such horrific ways have been loved by the Lord. Even today, our Father invites His wayward ones to return to Him. Look to Jesus Christ. Cry out to Him and find mercy and healing and forgiveness and life and love. Beloved of the Father, Find a God who calls you his people as you return to him. One of Hosea's kids was named not my people. We end the book of Hosea by him making them his people again. The Lord. And one of his other kids was named no mercy. And here we find that they have received a great mercy. Amen. We serve a God who is merciful and loving and able to make us bear fruit as we abide in his shadow. He has not forgotten his wayward bride, nor has he rejected her forever. He has loved his bride to the point of sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die for her rebellion. All are called to return to him in repentant faith, and he will have mercy. His bride is his, and he is hers forevermore. Praise God for his mercy. pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for love. Thank you for hope that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that we would seek our strength, seek our salvation, seek our sufficiency in no other place but in the shadow of your wings. And be reminded that in you we have all that we need. Build us up, strengthen us, that we might bear much fruit for your kingdom and long for the day when we are with you and all is made right and we are yours forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.